But I want to talk to you today about the word reckoning, reckoning. It's a word that uh, has a very specific meaning in Scripture that we misuse to talk about uh, uh, just speculation. Do you reckon it's going to rain today? Do you reckon we'll have fun? Do you reckon the preacher will put us to sleep this morning? So what I'd like to do is I want to take a real close look at that word as it relates to interacting with people. Now, I'm going to start with a baseball analogy because I used to play some baseball. It's probably the sport I know the best. And today I happen to know that is the very last day of the baseball season, and after today the playoffs are going to start. And what happens during that, well, back in the old days when I was really a fan of baseball, there wasn't a whole lot of play between the different divisions. So when the World Series came along, one team would play another team that they hadn't seen all year long. And what the teams would do is they would send out scouts. And they would go to the other team and they would watch them play and they would make notes on every baseball player. This was called a scouting report. And they found out that this particular baseball player would be a very good hitter. Maybe he could handle a fastball, but he was a little weak on break, slow-breaking stuff. And they would all write all that down. And they would talk about his fielding. And, and maybe he had a good glove, but he had a weak arm. Or, or maybe he was a very aggressive on the base paths. And they would write this all down, and they would have a report on every single player on the other team. So when you got together, you would study your opponent, and you would know that if it was 50-50 and I needed to stretch and look for an extra base from the right fielder, I probably shouldn't do it, but the left fielder, I'm going to take a shot at it because of their arms. Let me tell you a silly scenario. Let's suppose I was playing on one of the teams, and they wrote a scouting report on me. And I know this is going to sound silly, but they wrote, a, they wrote a scouting report on me, and they said, he's slow on the base paths. And I got mad. How dare they call me slow on the base paths? Now, that kind of sounds kind of silly, doesn't it, in that scenario? We get an opponent, too, and he sends out his scouts, and he looks for our weaknesses, and we can get mad at our weaknesses, but you know what? That's what's going to be exploited. So if you're a baseball player, wouldn't you kind of like to know the scouting report on you to know where they're going to try to attack you? And the answer is yes. But we as Christians, when someone gives us our scouting report on us, we get mad and we get offended. Let's suppose it's the end of the season and the World Series is all over, and now you've got three to four months off, wouldn't you kind of like to have the scouting report on you? I think I would. Why would you like to have that? Just so I can get mad and get aggravated at the one that wrote it up? No, because I've got three months to heal my wounds and get in shape and work on my weaknesses. And if I had an objective opinion of what my weaknesses were, that scouting report would be very useful for me to work on things throughout the off-season. And when we look at this word reckoning, that reckoning, I guess you could call it a scouting report. And if you're not a baseball fan and you have no idea what I'm talking about, you could talk about work in a performance review. It's the same thing. Wouldn't you like to have a copy of that thing? And the answer is yes. And a good brother or a good father or a good pastor, his job is something like this. They hold up a mirror to each one of you. 
And normally what happens when the mirror is held up to us, instead of attacking the person in the mirror, we want to attack the person behind the mirror. So I want to talk about reckoning, but the whole purpose of reckoning is to overcome weaknesses to make you better and stronger to go forward. That's what it's for. If it's to embarrass, if it's to assault, if it's to get even, you know what, you're not doing anybody a bit of good. What I'd like to do is I want to look at the word reckoning. The word reckon shows up in the Bible 33 times. 33 times. And seven times it's talked about financial stuff. 14 times it's talking about genealogy. That's 21, and that's all I'm going to cover. You want to look at the notes, you can get the other 12, but I'm not here to do that. I'm here to make an application to real life. So I'm going to use the Word of God to define it. And when it's used to talk about financial, I think it'll help you understand what I'm talking about. Now, the word reckon is a nautical term. A nautical term. And what that nautical term is, is when I jump into a sailboat and I leave New York and I go to London... I have a starting point and I have an ending point, and somewhere in the middle, I'm going to do a calculation to see if I'm track. That calculation in the middle of a journey is to see if I'm on track is called a reckoning. You heard there's a day of reckoning coming. That means you're going to, at the end of your life, you're going to sit before God and he's going to judge you. The Bible never uses reckoning that way. It doesn't make sense to alter an adjustment when the game's over. It's done in the middle of a journey. And we'll show you that's how the Bible uses that word. A reckoning is a calculation to alter course. And the problem is too many times I'll go to a place like the rescue mission and I'll say, we need to do a reckoning. And I'll ask, where are you going? They go, I don't know. Y'all, I don't know how to adjust the course if I don't know where you're going. You have to have a destination in mind. Okay, so let's look at a couple of ways it's used. This way it's used three times talking about the Jubilee. Now the Jubilee is recorded in uh, Leviticus 27. Let me read this passage here, 27, 23. Now we're just taking a couple moments to define the word reckon because I want to apply it to our lives. Then the priest shall reckon unto him the worth of thy estimation, even unto the year of Jubilee, and he shall give thine estimation in that day as a holy thing unto the Lord. See, what happened back then is if you had a piece of land, there was a 50-year cycle. And on year zero, all the property went back to the original owners. And if I were to sell a piece of property, that person could own that piece of property, but only for 49 years. At year 50, it had to go back to the original owner. So what they would do is they would do a reckoning... So if the value, I'm just going to make up something silly. Let's pretend the value was $1,000, okay? And I did this transaction at year 25, the price would be $500 because you only get to enjoy it for half of the 50 years. That calculation in the middle of the Jubilee was called a reckoning. You cannot reckon without a beginning You can't reckon without an end, and it's a calculation done in the middle of a journey. That's one. This was used two times in construction. I don't know if you've ever had a home, and let's say you did it, and you were building a home, and you got a construction loan. Well, what happens is in a construction loan, 
what you do is you would go to the bank and they would say, I approve this house and we're going to build it for $100,000. And a builder would come and he would finish a quarter of the property. And you know what you do? You give him a quarter of the money. And then some more time, a month or two would go by and he would finish half the property. And then you would give him another quarter to total a half. Those calculations along the way are called a reckoning. Do you understand? You've got a beginning and you've got an end. In this particular verse over here in 2 Kings 22, 6 and 7, unto the carpenters and the builders and the masons and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house, howbeit there was no reckoning made to them of the money that was delivered in the hand because they dealt faithfully. What happened here was normally under circumstances there would be a reckoning and the money would be distributed proportionally to how much work was done. But Solomon said, these guys are so faithful I know they've only finished half the work, but just pay them all the money. They're going to finish the job. So are, are we coming along about a reckoning? You understand what a reckoning is? You've got to have a starting point. You've got to have an ending point, And it's a calculation done midway through a journey to figure out how far we've gone along. The same thing is done in debt in Matthew 18. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought to him which owed him 10,000 talents. Basically, it was a loan was made, and the payment was supposed to be made here, and somewhere in the middle of it, they did a balance to find out how much you still owe. A starting point, an ending point, and a middle calculation somewhere in the middle. And the last time it's used, in Matthew 25, 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants come and reckon it with them. There was a man that had some money, and he gave five talents to one, he gave two talents to another, and he gave one talent to a third. He made a judgment on their talents based on their experience. And he says, you, I'm going to trust with 62% of my stuff. You, I'm going to trust 25%. And you, I'm going to trust only 12%. And some time went by. And he says, okay, let's see your returns. He checked the returns of the three money managers. And you know what that was called? It was called a reckoning. Well, you're thinking, Brother Dolph, that's the end. No, that's not the end. Because after the performance review, what he did, he did a reallocation. There was more investing to go. So he took the money from the deadbeat and he gave it to the great performer and he says, you can have this 12% and you go invest that too along with the 62% you started off with. So there was a beginning, there was an end and the calculation was done during the process. So let's go to the second time it's used and it's used to talk about genealogies. That word is used. It's used 14 times here, 14. What happened was, and I think most of you are familiar with this, There were 12 tribes of Israel, and God made a decree that the priests could only come from the tribe of Levi, right? And there was a time in the book of Nehemiah where the people had not been worshiping for a long time. They had been overrun, and they were starting to build back the city and build back the temple, and they were getting the priests together. They were getting ready to start a worship service, and they said, we need some priests, And a bunch of people showed up and says, I want to do it. I want to do it. And they said, are you from the tribe of Levi? And they went back and they checked from the beginning. And there was a couple guys that said, I want to be a priest. But you know what? They weren't Levites. And they said, nope, you can't do it. That was called the reckoning. There was a starting point. There was an ending point. That was the worship. And partially way through it, they did a calculation to see where they were. The same thing was done with Judah. Remember what came from Judah? The kings. Now, it's supposed to go to the oldest brother, Reuben. But Reuben messed up. 
So then I was supposed to go to the second brother and the third brother. But they messed up too, Simeon and Levi. And then the fourth brother. They said, oh, finally, a brother. And it went to Judah. That's why the kings came from Judah from David onward. So there was a reckoning. So it was time to get a new king. We've got to check the lineage. as he can. We go back to the beginning. Well, the beginning was transferred from Reuben to Judah, but they checked, and they, oh, this guy's from Judah. He can be the king and this leader. Again, we're talking about reckonings. Got a beginning, got an end, and this is a calculation done halfway through the process. I think I've done, based on the looks on your faces, I don't think I need any, any more time defining. Now I want to go to the application. Reckonings are done all the time. The first time we're going to look at is God does reckonings on churches. Matter of fact, if you go to Revelations 2 and 3, there are seven churches there, and he did a reckoning on all of them. But we're just going to look at the first one because it's the shortest in the first one. But God's going to do a calculation on the church. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's go back to our baseball player. We got a baseball player, and we say, okay, baseball player, you're, you're, you're a good fielder, and you hit a lot of home runs but you strike out a lot. And you think, wow. And, and you're a good player. But you know what? All those strikeouts can cost us a game or two or three. Well, you know what he's going to do the church at Ephesus? He says, you're a good church. And you're a good baseball player because you get a, hit a lot of home runs and you feel pretty good, but you strike out a lot and that striking out could cost you. Well, that's not what it says. He's going to say, I know you, and you can work really good as a church. And you got really good patience. And doctrinally, you're spot on. And you know what? You persevere. You don't even faint. But you know what? You strike out a lot. And that striking out a lot can cost you your church. No, they said, you left your first love. You're doing all that stuff for the wrong reason. You're doing it to puff yourself up. You're not doing it to say thank you. Let's read the passage. This is a reckoning of a church. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in the right hand and walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That's really figurative language, talking about Jesus walking into this church. And there's the preacher right in the middle. And he says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them that are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars. Your defense is great. Your arm is really strong. Your base running is fantastic. You hit lots of home runs. You get lots of RIs, but you strike out a lot. And that striking out a lot can cost you the ball game. You don't like that one, do you? Some of you baseball, non-baseball fans. Okay, let's do, the ba- let's do the work analogy. You're a good worker. You get all your work done. You get it on time. You're punctual. You're a good team player. The only problem is, is when we come in with a new computer system, you can't adjust. And that can cost us the game. But that's what he's saying right here. To this church, thou hast borne and hast patience for thy name's sake. Thou hast labored and not fainted. Good stuff, guys. And, and if only Jesus would have stopped right there, we'd have think this is an A-plus church. But that's not what he did, is it? 
Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick. So whatever this is, those other blue things on there, that's not enough to overcome the red thing, and it cost them the game. You got it? So that's a reckoning. It's pretty serious stuff. Okay, I'm on my ship. I'm going to London. And you're just leaving New York. And you say, yeah, but I was only off a half a degree. What happens when you're off a half a degree and you're traveling a thousand miles? You're going to miss by 300 miles. All right, let's look at a second reckoning. We just look at the reckoning of a church. Let's look at the reckoning of a person, a Christian. Hebrews 5, starting at verse 11, talking about a believer of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you're all dull of hearing. That doesn't start off too good, does it? Let's pretend you have a pitcher, and he's got a great fastball. Is, is there anybody here that doesn't even know anything about baseball? Should I move? Is everybody saying a little bit about baseball? Sandra, you give me the thumbs up? I'm good? Okay, all right. Just as long as you say Okay. He said, you got a good fastball. you got a great curve. Your, 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 your changeup is perfect. You fool them all the time. You're wild. You know what? That can cost you the game. Well, basically, he's going to say that. These people were great. He says, you were Hebrews. You, were you embraced it. You lost your jobs. You still embraced it. Everything was going fantastic. But then he said, wait a second. Y'all stop growing. For when, for the time, ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. And every one of you that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. You know, I've done this reckoning, and you're going from New York to London, and after one month, you should be somewhere about... Halfway, I'm looking at these old wooden ships with the sails, all that kind of stuff. I think it took the Mayflower two months to get over. So you should be about halfway, but you're still only 100 miles off the American coast. You're behind schedule. That's what he's saying. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In other words, you know what? You're great. You persevered, you faced pressure, everything's fantastic. The only thing is you stop reading and studying your Bible, and you haven't grown. So every time I come in here, i got to preach Bible 101 again. After two or three years, we got to move on to 102, 103. It's time to grow. He said, you're behind schedule. How about a biological child? Now, this is where it gets a little tough. Let's talk about biological children. As a father of five children, and when I've done parenting, I've, you've heard this example before, but as a parent, when I'm reckoning with my children, I'm reckoning in a lot of different areas. I have five kids, and each one had their own strengths and their own weaknesses. And I'm looking at them, and I'm looking at them physically, I'm looking at them spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, socially, and self-control or discipline. And I might have a child that's really an introvert, but he's very disciplined and he's very intellectual. But you know what? That could cost them in marriage. It could cost them at work. 
It could cost them in a lot of different ways. So as a parent, I look at all these different areas and I say, okay, you're here, there, you're here on this one, this one you're just right, this one you're way ahead of schedule, but this one you're behind schedule. And I shared that that's what I did. One of my children was, was very bright and ahead of schedule, but you know what, he was an introvert. So I called a buddy and I said, can you get a job because working with people? And he said, dad, I don't want to do that job. I know you don't want to do it, but you need to do it. You know what I was doing? I was doing a reckoning with him. Another child would come along, and he was social. That was not his weakness. That one, he was ahead of schedule. But there was another job where it was the self-discipline or the focus. I needed, and, and I said, yeah, second son, you need this job to be a little more focused. But dad, I don't want to do that. I want to do what my older brother's doing. I know that's what you want to do, but that's not what you need. You know what I was doing? I was doing a reckoning. What a mean dad. What is the purpose of a reckoning? The purpose of a reckoning is to grow the child. Because you know what? That could be the wildness. Great fastball, great curveball, great changeup, but the wildness is going to cost them the game. It might be the other one. Hits a lot of home runs, good fielder, good arm, but you know it strikes out a lot. That could cost them the game. That's what a reckoning does. So, as a father, that's what I do to my biological children. I hold up the mirror. We as individuals, we don't like that. But notice this description of God talking about him interacting with saints. And he likens it to a father with his child. And notice, in this passage as I read it, he's saying, you know what? It hurts. It's uncomfortable. But reckoning isn't about comfort. It's about growth. Verse 5. This is Hebrews 12, starting at verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receiveth. But my son might not like me. My daughter might not like me. That's not loving them. That's loving yourself. Sometimes you've got to do the hard things. But again, it's got to be done in the right spirit. And it's got to be done in a spirit that they know that this is for their long-term good. If ye endure chastening, God deal with you as sons. For what son is he that the father chasteneth not? But if ye were without chastement, whereof all partakers, then ye are bastards, not sons. Now, bastard is not a swear word here. It's a legal term. It's an illegitimate child. And God's saying he's dealing with you because if it was an illegitimate child, he would ignore you and just let yourself go on to your own devices. But he's not that kind of father, and he bears down and he chastens you because he loves you. If he lets you go and do what you want, that's not love. Verse 9, Furthermore, we've had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and gave them reverence, Shall we not much rather be a subjection unto the Father of spirits and alive? Notice verse 10 and 11. This is where it's real. For they verily for a few days chasten us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit. They do it. He for our profit. He does it. He chastens us because he wants us to grow. 
that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for this present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Those jobs that I got for my sons, they weren't pleasant. They didn't like them at first. They liked them at second, but they didn't like them at first. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Y'all, if I'm a baseball player and it's the offseason, I would love to get my scouting report. I would love to get that scouting report and hold it up and see what do I need. I got three and a half months to work on before the next season starts. I can work on my weaknesses because those weaknesses could cost my team the ball game. Well, it's the same way with the Word of God. Now, let's talk about a reckoning about a potential spouse. Think about what it takes to be ahead of a household. Now, again, I'm going to the Blue Ridge Women's Center. I'm going to the rescue mission. I'm talking about fathering two fathers. And when you discipline a five-year-old, I pray that when you discipline a five-year-old, you're looking at the 25-year-old head of household. And when you discipline a 15-year-old, you're looking at a 25-year-old head of household. That's what you're doing. You're doing it with a long-range focus. You're not doing it because he made you mad today, that child. You're doing it. You're looking for their long-term good. Think about what it takes. Let's suppose for courtship, you want to work on your child's emotional stability. You can't have someone that's pitching two-year-old brat fits at 15 and then have them pitch those fits at 25. That makes a terrible spouse. You cannot do one in terms of a young man that's financially unstable. You take, financially, you're not ready to lead about a wife. How dare you tell me if I'm not ready for marriage? Y'all, if you don't take care of that, you're looking at heartbreak down the road. This is one that can cost you to lose the game. Well, how about self-discipline? You think, well, at 15, you've got to be self-disciplined. Yeah, it's 15, you've got to be self-disciplined. That's what the game is, right? They can't get off, or the social media, or the spending, or whatever it is. If, if, if they don't have that self-discipline at 15, what happens when it comes to 25 when so much more is available to them? And it could be anything from, from gambling to porn to, to, to drugs to alcohol. That self-discipline, you want to make sure that, get, you know what? Because they can lose the ball game because of any one of those things. Else, the reckoning is, is for their own good. Now, here, here's one. And um, this is the, the Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. And I'm only going to read a couple of these verses. But here's one for a young lady. And I don't have time to pick on the men too. But the men, you can take every one of these and apply it to a man also. Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? The heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he hath no need of spoil? That's a huge thing. If a man and a woman, it doesn't matter if it's the man towards the woman or the woman towards the man, if there's no trust there, you know what? That's a deal breaker. That can cost you to lose the game. 
She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She worketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. Does she have a work ethic? Does he have a work ethic? If they don't, you know what? That can cost you the game. So just like as we look at the baseball player with all those things, we're just thinking, yeah, but he's got eight assets. There's only one weakness. That one weakness could be cost you the game. Now, again, I always preface this. You're going out there and you want, I want to marry a husband or I want to marry a wife, and he's only 30 out of 31. My guess is you've got to keep her because my guess is you're not 31 out of 31. Amen? But if you got one that's even 28 and 3, but they recognize the 3 and they're working on the 3, you probably got to keep her. None of us are that perfect one. I'm just being practical here. But the key is to recognize it, to see that is a weakness and I'm going to work forward, as opposed to how dare you say, I'm, I got 28 good things, how dare you point out the 3 bad things? Because they can cost you the game. Verse 15, she riseth white as yet night, she giveth meat to her household. She considereth the field and buyeth it, and the fruit of her hands she planted. She girdeth her loins with strength. Man, y'all, you want that in a guy and a girl. She perceived that her merchandise is good. Her candleeth goeth not out by light, night. And I know you've heard this story again, but I tell you what, I have been brainwashing my two girls with this chapter since they were three years old. And I've been brainwashing my sons with this chapter since they were three-year-old to look for that. And I tell you so much more of the story that I can embarrass Emma because she's down in North Carolina at a wedding. But you know the story. She was five years old. I said, Emma, it's time to go to bed. But Dad, I can't go to bed now. Why? Because a virtuous woman, light does not go out by night. <laughs> now, I wish her motives were sincere. But that's what she, but yes, she got it. Do you understand? For the wrong reason, but she got it. That's good. We want to reckon our young ladies, and we want to reckon our young men with the same qualities. They get just as many tough standards. How about a preacher? Do preachers need to be reckoned? They sure do. And here are three preachers I want to go over. Let's look at these guys. I'm in 3 John. I want to read 5 through 12. There's three preachers here. Two of them are good preachers. One of them you don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. The first one is named Gaius. Beloved thou Gaius. And if you would go up to verse 1, you'd find out that this is Gaius. Doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church. Whom, if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. You know what he's doing? He's leading sheep. He's not driving sheep. It's his ensample that's bringing them along. We're going to look at a guy that drives sheep and the second guy we're going to name. But this is the, this is the man. And notice that he's doing it to people in the church and he's doing it to people outside the church. Verse 7 because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. We ought, therefore, ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. So here's the name Gaius, and he did to strangers and to the brethren, and he was a gracious man, and he helped them. Okay, let's go to the second person listed, a man named Diotrephes. 
He's right the opposite. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have preeminence among them, receiveth of not. He just needed to be the man. He didn't care what the church said. He was going to do it his way. He had to be front and center. He just he had to be the man. He had to be the showboat. He had to be front and center. This, this is not the guy you want. You want someone leading, not driving. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds that he doth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Okay, real harsh guy. And then finally we come back and we finish up with a good preacher. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath a good report of all men and of the truth itself. He was true to men, he was true to love, he was true to kindness, but he was true to the doctrine also. Yea, and we also bear record, and you know that our record is true. Got a couple more verses talking about reckoning. It's a type of judgment, but it's done for a specific purpose. There's a beginning, there's an end, and this gets you back on course to get you to the end. I want to read just five verses. One of the verses we've already read, this first one here in Hebrews 12, 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. When you are doing a judgment, when you're doing a reckoning, the goal is conversion. Not to get even. Not to gain control. Not to justify yourself. The goal is for their long-term growth and conversion. And you know what? Sometimes it hurts. Maybe if I want to be a faster base runner, I got to go on a diet and cut off the Rocky Road ice cream. You think, well, that's terrible, isn't it? That hurts. And then you start training and you run the wind sprints and you try to improve. Yeah, there's some sweat. You lose some convenience. But the goal is, is to work on that one particular weakness, as opposed to saying, how dare you say I'm a road slow runner. Proverbs 15.10 and 19.18. Correction is grievous to him that forsaketh thy way. And he that hateth reproof shall die. I know you're going to correct someone. But if you don't correct them, they're going to lose the game. That's what that says. 19.18. Chasten thy son while there is hope. And let not thy soul spare for his crying. Now again, I'm not talking about child abuse here, but there's times when they're going to whine and they're going to complain. Oh, Dad, you're going to make me take this job? Yeah, boy. Why? It's for their own good. Second Corinthians 4 and 17. This is not talking about chastening, but it's talking about a long-term perspective. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceedingly internally weight of glory. You know, this little stuff that's going on right now, those corrections... Nothing. Not compared to the benefit. Risk reward? Got to have a long term outlook. And then here's my favorite reckoning verse in the whole Bible Romans 8 18. For I reckon, it's a pretty day outside. No, for I reckon the Detroit Lions might win the first championship in 40 years. No, that's not what it is. 
I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There's a starting point, and that was my spiritual birth. There's an ending point, and that's to be the glory with the Lord. And these little bumps in the road that we're going through right now is nothing compared to the party we're going to have at the end of life. Amen? That should give us hope to get through the trials. And I call them little bumps. Maybe they're big bumps. Maybe it's a big trip up. But you know what? It's still nothing compared to the party we're going to have at the end. And that's the calculation Paul said, I've done. And you know what? I think he's right. So may the Lord embrace reckonings. May the Lord help us with those, with any position we're in, whether it be work or a parent or or maybe you'll find yourself in the outfield looking and scouting for a baseball team. But reckonings can be very profitable. May the Lord bless you. Thank you.